right, okay, well, morning everyone. Um, welcome to uh, Engineering Maths uh, Lecture 5, uh, on uh, which we'll finish looking at computational methods for ordinary differential equations, and we'll move on to optimization. Uh, so I've got this picture. I can't remember which version of Sherlock Holmes I found it from, but uh, the reason for this picture is that I wanted to to show you that uh, in order to make clear to his readers that the villain, James Moriarty, was fiendishly intelligent and extremely dangerous, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, portrayed Moriarty as uh, not just a villain, a mastermind, but even more as a professor of mathematics. Uh, his textbook, uh, Moriarty's textbook, so in, order, and in order to prove that he's, you don't just write, like, the villain, Professor Moriarty, was fiendishly clever. But instead, you write a, a nicely constructed thing which shows rather than tells uh, the audience how clever he is. That's quite different from engineering reports where you just write boringly uh, the facts. But in, in, if you're writing a nice book, uh, you can tell people that uh, Professor Moriarty had written a book called The Dynamics of an Asteroid, which, uh, quote ascends to such rarefied heights of pure mathematics, it is said that there is no man in the scientific press capable of criticising it. So clearly, uh, this, the, the audience reading the book, it's very clear to them that uh, if you can deal with, uh, if you can deal perfectly and without uh, the poss and impeccably with all of the complexities of dynamics, and you can write such a, an uncriticisable book, then you must indeed be extremely clever. And this shows you how smart and dangerous Moriarty indeed is. Now, you'll be pleased to know that your questions, which I will set in your Tripos paper, will not be as hard as the ones which James Moriarty addressed in his book on the dynamics of an asteroid. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, part of this course is that you should understand computational methods for uh, performing dynamical simulations. Dynamical simulations like uh, the motion of something. Or, or, or other kinds of physics simulations. Um, and so, oh, for, oh yes. Um, so I was going to say, uh, I'd like to make this audio recording of this lecture, and I'd like to put it on SoundCloud. Um, so I've got a note which says, uh, you can get the slides off Moodle to go with it. Um, I don't know uh, whether this will be useful to people, but we'll get some feedback maybe, and I'll find out if they are useful. Um, so this means uh, if you ask or answer a question or otherwise feature on my recording somehow, uh, please could you say at the time uh, if you do not want to be in the recording. That way when I go through it, I'll be able to uh, delete any bits that I need to delete. And um, for, any, for any of the recordings I've done earlier in the course, if you could also let me know if you do not want, if, if you've answered a question and you don't want to be in it. In fact, I'll just probably assume that you don't, in which case I'll, I'll probably go through at some point and delete out the bits where anyone has previously said anything. Nonetheless, I think it might be quite useful. Anyway, it entertains me if I get to listen to my own voice, and it reminds me of what I said, uh, which is quite helpful. You'd be amazed uh, at a more advanced age how difficult it is to remember what's in the lecture course that you gave last year and have been giving for years. So uh, that's just a note there. So uh, let, you can let me know um, by email or whatever, uh, or just tell me uh, what, what if you... Uh, have any thoughts about that. So far we've looked at these numerical methods for integration, the straightforward task, and a similar but more complex task of simulation using ordinary differential equations, uh, where we're making extrapolations from a starting point to some future points successively, which we think a system is going to explore. Uh, so today we're just going to finish that and talk about difficulties with these differential equation solvers, difficulties in computational simulations, and we'll talk about um, then optimization, but mainly I'll do, I'll talk about the motivation and methods of optimization, and uh, we probably won't get to the, um, the harder algebra until next time, probably. Um, right, so I think we got to this part uh, on page 19, section 2.10, on these second and higher order ODEs, in which I said we had a method for dealing with first order ODEs by something like continuous straight, well, 
repeated straight line extrapolation. Uh, but I said we didn't obviously have a way of applying that to a second order ODE like acceleration is some function, or d squared y by dx squared is some function of x, y, and y prime. But the way to uh, solve that is to see that it's written on the page as a second order derivative, but to split it into two first order derivatives. So if you're not, if you don't see on the page the word velocity explicitly written, uh, you just invent the equation that dy by dx is the velocity. So that's one first order equation. And then you know uh, you're from your d squared y by dx squared, you get dv by dx is something else. And you treat these as two simultaneous first order ODEs. And we looked on the previous pages for methods for solving them um, by taking repeated straightforward steps. In this equations 2.10e to h, further down the page, uh, we've just got an example of this, which is uh, d squared y by dx squared, or y double prime plus y equals zero. You're given, of course, two initial conditions, the y value at x is zero and the y prime value or velocity at x is zero. And we could solve this one algebraically and find out that it's a simple harmonic oscillator that has y equals sine x as its solution. Uh, but if we apply this proposed method, uh, we could do so with some step size, starting at the initial point, taking some step size, size of our choice, so point 0.1, say, and we could uh, repeatedly extrapolate the future values. And of course, our simulation using this Euler method goes pretty badly wrong, as we might expect, because the function itself, sine x, is curved, and our repeated straight line extrapolation doesn't capture this properly. Indeed, it overshoots every time the sine wave goes through uh, a bend. And so the Euler method uh, experiences what's called walk-off. It get, its solution gets progressively worse and worse. Uh, nonetheless, you can imagine if you took a small step size or if we used a higher order method, uh, like the, the modified Euler or something like that, then we could probably have a solution which uh, remains adequate until we've extrapolated quite far into the future. So. And we've looked uh, already for one dimension at the error properties of this, and we're not going to look at the error properties for uh, two variables. Uh, not, not, in, not in the handout, anyway. Um, the error properties just concentrate on understanding them for a single, uh, a single variable like y of x. Okay. Uh, that script, like the others, is up on the GitHub, and I've probably put a copy on the Moodle already. Um, so section 2.11 is just the chance for us to review some problems when solving ordinary differential equations numerically. So these problems come, uh, it's useful to take them in the order uh, that I've written them. Um, so what I don't write on the page is it's possible the method might give you an exact answer. It's, it would be pretty good, you'd get pretty lucky, uh, but if your underlying function was a straightforward uh, polynomial, what, say a quadratic, then you could choose a high enough order method to exactly predict what it's going to do. Um, that would be quite lucky, though. In general, probably you're using computational methods because the functions are quite nasty, in which case they probably are not adequately approximated by a very simple polynomial. In which case, there's these two reasons, um, sections i and ii, uh, why you have small amounts of error after one step of the process. And those reasons are, it's, it's useful to separate out um, truncation error, which is what we've talked about algebraically, from round-off. So the truncation error is the fact that our numerical method is designed to perfectly deal with a certain number of Taylor series terms. So it might deal perfectly with up to the second derivative of the function for the modified Euler. Uh, if the real function has higher order derivatives, then the uh, numerical methods will partially miss out on these, at least. And so after one step, you'll have some incorrect prediction as to the future state of the system at the end of the step. And that's, that's an algebraic, or that's, that's a mathematical feature of the method. 
And then this alternative, this round off, this is nothing to do with algebra or maths. Uh, this is simply that you're, and, and it's usually, by the way, with modern computers using uh, quite precise numbers, it's usually a very small problem that doesn't cause too much, uh, it's, it's usually much less significant. Uh, but in principle, you have a finite, imagine your computer is effectively writing down your predicted future state, your future y value to some, some finite number of decimal points. Well, it does it in binary, but you can imagine it as a finite number of significant figures. And by uh, throwing away the bit at the end, you probably in a simulation do have a tiny amount of um, numerical error due to finite computer memory used to store a number. Typically, it's a 64-bit number. Um, so for those two reasons, even one step of a simulation usually gives you a slightly imperfect prediction of the future state of the system. And then section three is called propagation or inherited error. So this is also called walk-off. So this is because the method for solving ODEs computationally is to repeatedly take, is to repeatedly simulate uh, steps into the future. So obviously if the first step into the future gives you an inaccurate y value, then your, the end of your second step into the future has a more inaccurate y value because it's got the, the inaccuracy that's built up already plus the inaccuracy from getting the wrong slope prediction in the second step plus, um, pl plus the, the further error from that, from that step. So the fact that you have, uh, say, say you're predicting a distance traveled, if you're out by one millimeter after the first step, after the second step of the simulation, because you're continuously extrapolating into the future, you're probably accumulating, um, after the second step, you might be two millimeters out, third step, three, and it'll get worse and worse than that. So that's what we saw in this plot with the sine wave that was not correctly captured by the Euler method. Uh, you have propagation of error. Eventually you get to completely inaccurate predictions, unless your method by good by good fortune is a perfect approximation of the of the real function um, so that page is all about sort of numerical issues um, and um, a bit more complicated than that there's a mathematical issue so it might be that our differential equation um, we're solving something like this equation 2.11b, for example, it might be that I have an equation I've got here, d squared y by dx squared, or y double prime is equal to y, so acceleration is equal to position, and I've also given this some initial conditions. So I've said initial position y at naught is 1, and the rate of change of y at naught is minus 1. Now, this is a differential equation which has a general solution 2.11c. It could be uh, some exponential growth, some amount of e to the x times a constant a, and it could also be, in general, uh, some amount of exponential decay. Um, now, from the initial conditions, uh, the correct solution to this problem is that we have an exponential decay. Your y is equal to e to the minus x, and it should look like this. And if we solved algebraically, that's definitely what we'd get. The problem is we have these numerical errors which we talked about on the first page. So the solution to this equation so 2.11b, the solution y is e to the minus x, or 1, one times e to the minus x. Uh, this solution is what we would find algebraically, uh, but we find this, this is our solution uh, because it exactly matches the initial conditions, that the initial position is y is 1, and the initial slope is y prime is minus 1. If the initial conditions had been even a tiny bit different, the correct solution would have included a little bit of e to the x, as well as e to the minus x. And because of these numerical errors, the round-off or the truncation errors, uh, at some point later in our simulation, the numerical values which are being predicted will become sufficiently far away from the perfect 
uh, e to the path of e to the minus x, uh, that it will eventually um, start predicting steps which actually include a bit of e to the plus x as well as e to the minus x. And in order to show you this, I've I wrote a script which uh, badly increases the amount of round-off error. And you see that if we were to run this script, and it at every stage it rounds off the number being stored uh, very coarsely, um, eventually your computer starts um, predicting... It's, it's dealing with the y double prime is equal to y correctly, uh, but because it's because its initial conditions for, a, for some future step have become wrong, it eventually starts predicting uh, exponential growth instead of the true exponential decay that we should have found. And this problem, there are particular, obviously, if the real solution to the problem had been exponential growth, then the risk of adding in a tiny amount of exponential decay uh, wouldn't have been a problem because the, a tiny amount of exponential decay added to my system wouldn't have spoiled my solution. However, because in this example the true solution is an exponential decay and the alternative solution is a, a really huge and growing e to the plus x term, uh, therefore I can get onto a, I can quickly get my system, my solution dominated by a, an incorrect general solution which I shouldn't be picking up, but for computational reasons I do. Um, now what I will say though is that it took surprisingly brutal truncation for me to force my computer to go wrong this quickly. And so this is something you should be aware of when you're, if possible, you should um, be aware, is a solution, is a system definitely expected not to undergo an exponential growth or a divergence to infinity? Um, if you're definitely not expecting it and your computer predicts that it happens, uh, then it could be because your computer has latched onto a, uh, a, sol a general solution to the equation which shouldn't have been found in the case that you're looking at. Okay. Um, so in order to avoid this problem, if it comes from, well, regardless of what it comes from, you can use smaller step sizes, for example, um, or better, better uh, higher order methods. Okay, and then there's this uh, general purpose phrase which you'll find a lot in numerical methods, uh, section V, uh, stiff solutions. Uh, what is this? So, um, so the problem that when you're told that a particular computational problem, oh, it's, it's a stiff problem, that's just a, a vague term meaning it's quite difficult to deal with. Uh, the general description is that it's a, so stiffness is a property both of the problem itself and of the solution method. And basically it's characterized by this sort of thing. This curve here sketched is a bi-exponential decay. So you have uh, your, your, your curve here, it's a, some lots of e to the minus ax and some, some quantity of e to the minus bx where, say, ax, e to the minus ax is a fast exponential decay, and e to the minus bx is a very slow exponential decay. Now, you know already that in order to make correct, accurate predictions of the future values of a fast exponential decay, we need to take a very small step size in the simulation. Otherwise, you might extrapolate to negative numbers. Uh, but, of course, in order to finish mapping out the slow exponential decay, if you're taking a small step size, you need lots of calculations in order to get to the end of the system. So that's uh, roughly what is meant by numerical stiffness. Um, it's that it's difficult to deal with. You have to take lots of calculations because each individual calculation requires to be quite a small step. That's the essence of the problem. Uh, miles of ink uh, or uh, what tons of paper have been expended on different ways for getting around this problem, and I just will look in a minute at a few of the simpler methods for making your computer programs deal a bit better with this kind of case, because there's no reason why you should be required. Often you don't need to be wasting like 30 minutes while you wait for a calculation to finish. Often there are quite simple ways to get it to finish in the useful 10 seconds, which is convenient if you're just looking at a simple problem on the computer.
Um, Alright, so I have an example for this. Um, oh yes, um, and um, so I showed you last time this predator-prey model. Um, so we ended up with populations of two different animals uh, undergoing relatively sharp spikes next to each other, and then a, a slow, a slowly varying uh, phase in between the spikes. So that's an example of something which would suffer from some numerical stiffness. Uh, you would need quite small steps in order to uh, use, say, the Euler method to capture the behavior around the peaks. But then if you're using small steps, then you end up uh, taking lots of calculations to get through these boring lag phases. So that's, that's just an applied example. Um, so solutions to this, um, I'll show you a few. Um, so one of them is just to use better methods, so higher order runge cutter methods. Uh, those methods, because they deal with higher order derivatives, uh, you won't need to use such small step sizes around the curved parts of the function. And the, the, the other two I will show you in this example. So here's this example, uh, a bi-exponential decay of radioactive material. Uh, this stuff in the picture, oh, well, here's some guy with a hat looking at some stuff. I was trying to, I was trying to give the impression that this is a chemical engineering plant uh, that dealt with something radioactive. And this nasty yellow-looking stuff, I actually have no idea whether it actually is the yellow cake uranium ore, or whether it's actually just like sulfur uh, coming out of a biscuit factory or something, or, or wherever you get sulfur from. Um, anyway, so this yellow stuff, <laughs> where does sulfur come from? Well, here's a question. Yeah, well, I, that's where I'd get it, yeah. Um, <laughs> my, knowledge of, my knowledge of chemical sources is, is sort of a, a renaissance people going around digging up sulfur for making gunpowder. Um, pretty sure you get lots of it from the gas industry, too, for reasons I'm not entirely certain about. Uh, but somehow that it's, re it's removed from the natural gas stream or something. Anyway, regardless, this stuff is uh, my, uh, simply there to evoke the idea of a nasty block of material containing an unknown amount of t two radioactive isotopes. Uh, but for some reason, I've got this equation, so uh, the actual decay going on here is y, um, the amount of radioactive material left, is one lot of e to the minus k1 times t. k1 is the, first r the rate constant for one mole of the first stuff decaying, uh, plus one lot of e to the minus k2 times time, uh, a different isotope decaying with a rate constant k2. Now, the ordinary differential equation is this. So if I just gave you this, uh, I'd say dy by d time is minus k1 e to the minus k1t minus k2 e to the minus k2t, with an initial condition that y at time zero is 2. And... I know that you could look at that, and you could probably eyeball it, or you could say something along the lines of, this looks separable, so I can just integrate with respect to time. And when I integrate with respect to time, I get uh, some solution. I could integrate that. I get a constant. Oh, look, the initial conditions make my constant zero. Uh, and then I've got an exact solution. But in principle, I'm only showing you the easy case, because, of course, we're worrying, we're worrying about the essence of the problem, uh, which you might see in other cases where you can't so easily integrate. So uh, suppose then that we need to solve this computationally. K1 is 10 and K2 is 0.1 and the Euler method simulation is used. Uh, so start at time is 0 with a step size h. So I would write a computer program for predicting how much uh, total radioactive material is left after time t and I would plot out with those points this bi-exponential decay. Uh, which I've talked about. And that would work, but if I were to use... Well, tell me, what is the... Um, what is the biggest step size I could use without in this problem? So, what is the biggest step size I could use in this problem? Maybe I'd... Ooh, okay. So, in this problem, I would not want to use a step size bigger than, say, uh, 0.2. Is that right? If I used a, so if I, if I used for some reason, I'm evaluating the slope at time zero. Um, so if I have initially two moles of stuff, and I use this 
equation here to evaluate the slope at time zero. Well, one of the reasons this, this equation is easy, by the way, is because um, y, the amount of stuff, doesn't feature in this expression on the right for the rate of change of y. Uh, but nonetheless, this equation does capture the, the fundamental problem that if I take time is zero, I've got a slope of uh, minus k1, so minus 10, minus k2, so minus 0.1, so minus 10.1, or about minus 10. So if I take a step size of 0.2, that would give me a change in y of about 2, and I'd predict that in one step of 0.2, all of my radioactive material was gone. So I'd think, I'd, I would wrongly uh, think that the stuff had become completely safe, and actually almost all of the slowly decaying stuff would still be there, and some of the really fast decaying stuff would still be there. So problem is, you need lots of calculations. So how do you get around this? Um, Hmm. How much simulation work have you done already? You've done some bits, but probably, um, I would say, yeah, have a minute. I, I, I finished my tea. Drown. Have a minute while I don't finish any more of my tea. Um, and so, uh, see if you can describe to me in terms of um, in terms of what sort of programming I might do, uh, what I could do to improve on uh, this bad behavior, the fact that I would need tons and tons of calculations. Right, okay, so uh, let, 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 let's see if you are thinking what I am thinking, uh, and that you have uh, a couple of at least simple methods to improve on uh, what's, what's going on here. How, how might you improve on this large number of calculations needed? Yep. You could make the step size of function like the gradient that you Good, that actually covers both of the methods that I wanted to go on and describe a bit more precisely. Uh, does anyone want to suggest alternatives to that? It's a big field, so I mean, you could look up more. I'll just talk in principle about these things. But you're right that the, um, the key thing is in uh, one or two ways, of which one is actually pretty clever, uh, muck about with the step sizes that you're taking in the simulation. Um, The first way is actually simpler. It, it, it's quite simple to understand, but it's in some ways quite clever. So we've described so far the principle of what we've been doing is a, um, a finite change in the independent variable. We've been looking at, um, if you imagine, finite steps forward in time. Uh, so finite coordinate change uh, systems uh, is what we're using. Um, in fact, for lots of problems, you have something called a, a finite state difference is your step size. So you have your equation for gradient, and instead of saying I want to take a constant uh, step in time, uh, what I say is I want to take a constant step in amount of material. So a constant step along, in this case, it looks like the y-axis. Um, so this is a, a simple solution. for. This is actually quite a nice solution for the bi-exponential decay, uh, because I can say if I want to always change the amount of uh, y by, say, 0 0.05 moles. I can evaluate the slope at my initial condition, work out what step in time I need in order uh, corresponding to that finite step in amount of moles, and then I know that step size, so I just uh, update my Euler thing, um, what looks like the wrong way around. So I update my y value by a constant step, and I've worked out what step in what corresponding time step uh, from the slope I need to take in order to do that. And so I get something which maps out the same curve correctly, uh, but it does so using far fewer, um, far fewer calculations. But this is, there are certain kinds of problems for the, which that works quite well. 
Uh, Bioexponential decay is one of them. But uh, in general, you might have very complex problems and you can't be guaranteed that this is a good approach to take. Um, and in particular, you might have a problem which oscillates and you might accidentally try taking a Y step and you're looking for the, a step which takes it outside the physical range, in which case you're practically forcing your solution to go wrong. So if you imagine the, um, imagine the sine wave that you're trying to predict in the future, uh, you might eventually end up, um, you, you, you might force it, force the system to look for a Y value outside the envelope that the sine wave should be staying in. Um, in which case you, you, you can, in this finite uh, state difference method, you can force it to go wrong in some interesting new ways. Uh, so if you don't want to use that system, uh, there's the adaptive step size principle, which is not actually difficult at all. Um, but you have to think, you have to think, we've already thought about methods using, when we did numerical integration, we talked about methods for estimating the error of our calculation using only data from the calculation and not knowledge about the underlying algebra. And we can do the same thing in uh, simulations with differential equations. So we can imagine, here's my bi-exponential decay on the top, but I can imagine my strategy is that for every uh, computational step I take, I want to keep my relative error, say, smaller than, say, 1% of the current value. Or maybe I want to keep the, the absolute error at each step smaller than 0.01 or something. So I have an acceptable target error, which could either be a constant error or a fractional error. And I want to use only computational methods to work out how big a step size I can take at any point in order to stay within this acceptable error. So uh, for this simulation, what does it say? It says, consider doing um, one step of some particular size h. And then try a computation again where you consider taking the same step with uh, in two parts, each of half the size. And we have a formula. So for, for example, the Euler method, we have a formula for predicting how much error I'm expecting there to be. So in this script, I've said, I think I'm using a, uh, a two-point, I'm using a, an Euler step, and I'm, so from, from my knowledge of how much the error improves as I take more steps, I expect that my, um, I, I can estimate what residual error is remaining in my, high in my higher precision two-step calculation, uh, just from the numerical data, and uh, I can work out then uh, what is my uh, percentage error in my uh, final value. And so once I've done that, I feel like I, it looks like I've done twice as much work for taking one computational step, but once I've done that, I can then do a check. I can see if my proportional error is too big, then I can try again with a smaller step size. And conversely, if my proportional error is much smaller than my target, so it's, it's too far within my budget and I'd be wasting computational time to continue doing this, uh, then I could uh, go, I could uh, proceed on the, I could say this is an acceptable solution, but for my next part of my calculation, I will tell the computer to use a bigger step size and time. So this is a, a simple adaptive step size method. Um, I don't expect you to be able to program that. You might find it useful to be able to program that. Um, so if you do that for the bi-exponential decay, uh, you see that my computer starts off taking a small step size and eventually it decides I can take a much bigger step in time. And it, and it does that. And it gets the same, the correct solution, but with many fewer calculations done. So um, useful things that you might, in any case, it's not very difficult to do. And if it saves you from ever sitting in front of the calculator, it's probably less than half an hour of programming. So if, it, if, it, if you can do it and it saves you having to wait half an hour, um, for a result, and you can get a result in a few minutes, it's probably well worth doing. Um, and many more complicated methods exist uh, than this. Lots of library functions will simply use more complicated methods without um, troubling you. But the point of this course is that you do want to understand, to some extent, what your computers are doing, so you know if the, the answer is reliable as well as accurate. Okay, good. So we're on to um, section three then, on page 22. 
have my hand out. Optimization. Optimization means uh, the art of adjusting some features of a process to get the best possible results. Uh, when we say best in this way, uh, in this section, uh, we're talking about something called a mathematical objective function. It's quite important. A mathematical objective function is a thing that it, it's just one, it gives you one number, like profit, having done some particular process under various different conditions. Um, there's some other definitions on this page. There are decision variables. Those are the things that we change in order to maximize the profit. Um, constraints are equations we need to satisfy at the same, so the decision variables we find have to satisfy the constraints, uh, but we don't get any bonus points for uh, very much satisfying the constraints. Uh, they, do, they just have to be accepted. Um, state variables, these are things that we're not changing, uh, but we sort of need to know them in the background, like um, the temperature of some seawater outside a plant. Uh, not something that you're going to be able to choose, but something that might affect your calculations in a, in a cooling calculation. Um, so the motivation... The motivations are those... I've talked about you maximise profit, but actually, uh, much more interesting for me... Uh, much more interesting for me is not so much... Uh, not so much optimization for the purpose of uh, straightforwardly maximizing money or minimizing loss. Uh, optimization is also very important in the, the scientific quest uh, for learning the truth, for finding out correct parameters in problems. So parameter fitting. Uh, and I'll talk about that um, with some pictures for a minute. Uh, the methods that are involved in optimization um, are, these are the ones we'll look at so that you've seen them from a computational point of view, although I think you will already have seen them, uh, most of you will have seen them in various different ways before, uh, but you understand uh, differentiating f of x if it's a one-dimensional function to find minima maxima uh, inflections. Uh, you may well have seen, you probably have seen using a, a Hessian matrix approach, uh, but we'll look at the algebra for that. Uh, you've probably seen Lagrange multipliers before for doing constrained optimization, but I have, um, I have, I have a, a lecture on that. And linear programming is something which you might have seen, but it would be interesting to look at it from the computational point of view of using it in large-scale problems. Okay, but uh, anyway, so motivation for optimization includes uh, parameter fitting, or learning the truth. Uh, so then, uh, so here, 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 blah, blah, blah. Oh yes, sorry. Uh, a bit more introduction first. One objective function. If uh, profit or pollution are both important, then what you can't do is what uh, a couple of years ago we had design projects, which I, I was sitting at the back of the design project presentations from the 2A students, and I asked they how I was, I was, I was idly uh, writing down anything I could think of that was really pedantic about what they were doing um, for my entertainment. And so we heard that. This guy came forward. He very proudly informed us that uh, we in Group H, um, for us in Group H, profit is very important. And so in our design, we have optimized the profit that can be made by our, I think it was a coffee, manu a ground coffee manufacturing plant. And I thought, oh, a sensible man, greedy man, has optimized his plant for profit. I thought, this shows, very, this shows good honesty because this is probably what he was doing. And the next guy came up from the same group and said, uh, In Group H, the environment is very important to us. We have optimised our process in order to minimise the impact that we cause by polluting the environment. At which point I wrote down bollocks. Because, <laughs> not so much because I objected to him saving the environment, but rather because at this point they'd introduced a clash between what they'd said, and it was simply not consistent within itself. That... Um, you have in optimization that we're talking about here one objective optimization. Uh, you can only optimize one thing. Um, 
There's a branch of maths called multi-objective optimization where you ask the question, what does it mean to try and optimize two different things at the same time? Uh, but in simple terms, it means a trade-off. And what, you, what they should have done... I don't mind. They could have done either. They could have done profit or environment. But uh, what they should have done was say, we've invented this, uh, uh, this modified profit in which we've uh, internalized this variable, this cost of pollution, and we found some optimal solution which takes into account both things. Okay, uh, so that, that's that's what I say about... Um, oh yes, and those are constraints uh, which are things like um, I've got a certain amount of material to work with or some flow rates are absolutely required. Uh, those are simply equations we have to satisfy. Um, okay. So to show what I mean by this uh, making a single objective function, uh, imagine you're designing a heat exchanger, and uh, your strategy, uh, I want to design a good heat exchanger, uh, but I have here, a good heat exchanger is one that uh, overall doesn't cost me too much, uh, but I have on my page two annoying sources of cost. Uh, the first is the size of the heat exchanger. Uh, the bigger the heat exchanger, the more money I have to spend on the metal or the alloy to make it. But on the other hand, I'm going to be using the heat exchanger, and if I make it bigger, the operating cost is less because I can get away with slower flow rates. So I've got two different sources of cost, and what I want to do is invent a single objective function which I'm going to call lifetime cost and optimize that. So you can imagine here on the, here's a, a schematic plot, uh, the area of the heat exchanger that I'm designing is on the uh, x-axis. Area means um, heat exchange cross-section area. And I've got a couple of curves. Capital cost simply increases as you make your heat exchanger bigger, but the lifetime utility cost drops. So we're looking for this uh, minimum. So in simple terms, I get some function f of x, and I find the minimum point. And we're done. Right, so that's a profit type optimization. Okay, so minimization then in the scientific quest for the truth, uh, parameter fitting, which is, uh, it's easier to show you how it becomes more complicated um, and how you need quite good computational methods. Uh, here's, here's, some, here's some pictures from my research. Um, so I'll put all of these slides up on the, um, on the Moodle in a bit, uh, because I see I've put on lots of words for, for, for you to entertain yourselves writing down. Um, so the scientific quest for the truth. By the way, is the top of this screen off the board? Or is it, have I nudged all of my slides up? No, the, so is it, is it that the projector should be aimed lower and not that I've screwed up all of my slides? Yeah, okay. Okay, right, good. Oops. I'll come, uh, I'll come back to this next time. So this is a bacteria spore. Uh, it's the, so this is uh, like a seed, uh, a bacteria seed. And uh, so my colleague, uh, Graham Christie, is a spore expert. And I am not an expert in the microbiology of the spore. Uh, but they're terribly interesting because uh, you have um, some which are important. They are the disease-causing, like uh, anthrax, or rather Bacillus anthracis is the... Uh, is the microbe which can cause the disease anthrax, or uh, C. difficile is a spore former which can uh, cause uh, hospital-acquired infections. Now, the problem with these microbes is that they sit in the environment, and when they run out of food, or for other reasons, uh, they stop being ordinary bacteria, and they form these endospores, these effectively um, dehydrated, dormant, uh, and almost indestructible um, cells. And these things are, they're interesting partly just scientifically because they're very tough. So they can sit in the environment, they can sit in the soil, say, for centuries, and then when a, a cattle comes along, 
and it snorts up one of the spores from the environment, then within a few minutes, uh, this apparently inert spore can start to germinate and turn into an anthrax infection. So this is interesting on its own. And of course, they're also excitingly tough because they have uh, an armored protein coat, which keeps them dehydrated and protects them from their environment. The effect of this is that if you put them in boiling water, they just think they're having a nice warm bath and they're okay. And then you take them out of the boiling water, you put them on some food, they come back to life and they're good to go. Now, so this protective coat is interesting, uh, but it's this little gray layer here in the electron micrograph picture. And it's only about um, less than 100 nanometers thick. So this is a problem because it's this armor coat. It's made up of 70 or so different proteins. But if I want to uh, learn something about the science of these things, I'd like to know um, if these proteins are arranged in, say, layers like the skins of an onion, I'd like to be able to see what that layer order is in order to say what each protein does. But the normal way of doing specific protein labeling is to put a, an optical fluorescent protein, a, a fluorescent, visible fluorescent protein, onto the protein of interest and then see where it is. But if you do that to this thing, no dice, because the protein coat is so thin that optical diffraction means that if you take a normal image under a normal microscope of these spores, uh, you just see overlapping colored blurs, and you cannot distinguish the order of different protein layers. Um, not conventionally. Uh, but I can improve on this, and we can improve on this using a uh, technique I developed, but it, it uses optimization. So here are some images of some spores containing a fluorescent coat protein that I'm interested in. And here on the bottom is a mathematical model of a spore. So as Graham says, a spore, it's this sort of elongated, it's this sort of almond shape. Are telling Graham, that's no good. So in mathematics, what you call an almond, we call a, a prolate ellipsoid of revolution, which has this equation. And we've labelled a protein coat, and it has this dimensions A and B for its long and short axes. And in mathematics, we often have this concept of a forward problem and an inverse problem. A forward problem is if I know the underlying true physics of the world, like the size of a spore and the microscope's response function, uh, then I can uh, predict the data that I'm going to see. So from the truth, I can predict the data that I'll observe. That's a forward problem. An inverse problem is that if I've got the data, the image of a spore, I want to do parameter fitting to find out the underlying truth, uh, the um, size of the spore and the microscope's response function. So uh, I'm interested here in doing the inverse problem, given microscope pictures, work out the spore structure. And... Uh, oh, yes, and a part of this is that I need an equation. So the truth and data in physics are related often by an equation. So I just want an equation uh, which says, uh, if I know this structure, what is the image I expect to see? And it's not actually as bad. I've deliberately made it look worse than it is. But the point is that I know a microscope is a roughly, it's a uh, shift invariant linear response system. Uh, it means that the object, the image that you get is the convolution of the object with the blur radius of the microscope. And you can solve that mathematically, and you can say, this is an equation which says, if my spore is a spherical fluorescent shell, uh, this equation tells me the radial distribution of brightness in the image that I should see from the spore. And... I can do that for a spherical spore, and I can also do that in a different way for an ellipsoidal spore. So this means, this is useful, because this means if I then have on the left-hand side a picture of this almond-shaped spore, I can say on the right, here's a rough guess, this is an initial guess for my spore structure, uh, but then I can do an iterative search. So this is an optimization step, I can iteratively improve my structure parameters in my model, until I get what I think is a nice fit to the image data. And once I have a nice fit to the image data, I can say maybe it's a good enough fit, so good in fact, that I think the fitted parameters I've found actually do tell me something true about the actual structure that I have uh, in reality. So we do that, and then we can do a bar chart showing the, uh, the, the, the radial location, the location of the protein with respect to the spore center. Or what we can do that's a bit flashier is we can 
say, here's a load of spores. Oh, and we can do this. If we can do this to one, and we see that the blue curves representing the data, the measured brightness, is well fitted by the red lines, the model, then I say it's a good model and the fit is meaningful. And I can apply this to lots of spores. Uh, and then the flash thing that I can do is I can take my raw image data and not just I don't just get the parameters telling me what the structure of each spore is, but I can take those parameters, I can throw them back into the image model, which I already had as an equation, and I can use them to reconstruct what the spore would have looked like if I changed one of the parameters and I said, that thing I was calling a blur radius is just a number as far as I'm concerned, so make it smaller. So remove the blur because once I've got fitted parameters, it's just a number. Uh, I don't have to suffer with diffraction in the same way an experimentalist does. So I can take my parameters, get a, a super resolved or high precision image of what the spore would have looked like if it wasn't blurred. And I've got this improvement by applying the assumption uh, my additional knowledge that the spore is well approximated by an equation for an ellipsoidal fluorescent shell. So I haven't completely cheated. Uh, I'm not pulling these improved images out of nowhere. It's I've found a way to combine the information from the experimental measurement with some other information about the fact that spore has a, an ellipsoidal geometry. And by combining that information, uh, you can go back to get... Uh, data that's a reconstructed image data that's better than the raw image data before you combined it with extra maths law. And you can do this for lots of spores and then you can get a picture where you do this on average for different proteins and then you can uh, see in some cases uh, that you have one protein lying inside the other protein. So you can say where they are and this is very useful to do. Ah, okay, um, so we'll go on then next time to look at um, algebraic optimization. Um, but in principle, this stuff is uh, more useful than you might think. It's used a lot in inference. Okay.